with me in your Bibles to Judges 19. And so, especially for those of you who are just getting here, um, we have been preaching through the book of Judges. So, just to be clear, I didn't pick this passage for the fun of it. Right? This is the this is part of the beauty of going through the scriptures. Uh, when you pick a book, you get to learn the, the flow of thought. And so this is probably one of the most jarring and traumatic places in the Bible. But it's here to teach us. As Paul would say, all scripture is God-breathed and inspired and useful for teaching and training. And in this case, it's training us not to desire evil and to not to practice evil as those before. And so what I'm going to do this morning, this is all one story, Judges 19 to 21. I'm going to read chapter 19, and then I'm going to summarize the story and, uh, and then we'll, we'll see what we, we learn from it. But I would also encourage you to read it uh, because it, it does fit in well with the theme of the book that unbelief, uh, well, it's a slippery slope. It turns ugly. And we, we need a king, Jesus. And that's the point of this book. So let's, let's read this and we'll pray. It's Judges chapter 19. This is God's word. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him a servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they, went, so they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. 
And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening, and the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts to the, to the, of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend your night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to, on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying on the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her into all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. And this is God's word. It is true, trustworthy, and given in love. Let's pray. Father, this passage makes us long for a good king, and so we thank you that you are good all the time. And I ask now as we hear you speak to us, um, use these words to cause us to long to be changed more deeply by you, to rejoice that we have a king of love, um, and to live out that love. And so we pray, move us by grace to want to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And we ask this in the name of the Father. The Son and the Spirit. Amen. We just read what I think I would call a biblical horror story. Um, it's, it's disturbing. It's, it's nauseating. It's probably up outside of the cross. It's one of the most disturbing places you can find in all of Scripture. And part of the power of the story is it's meant to show you um, 
the down, it's meant to show you if everything is relative, if uh, this is what life will look like with, without God as king. And so I'm calling this sermon Lessons from a Biblical Horror Story. And I want to explain that for a moment because most of us don't think of horror stories as good teaching tools. Right? I mean, most of us don't turn on a zombie movie and say, teach me about myself. <laughs> they are often mindless entertainment. I mean, that's, that's part of it. Some people just enjoy it, but they're often teaching something, uh, showing you something about human nature. I mean, if you think about zombies for a moment, uh, seriously, <laughs> zombies are a imaginative, terrifying way to show you what it looks like when human beings live by their desires alone and never say no. Zombies are a picture of humanity when you live solely by your appetites, by your desires, and by your glands. Just give me what I want. That's the point of those kind of stories. Which is how Paul describes us in Ephesians 2. Before we knew Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Walking and living in our the desires these all-controlling desires of our bodies. And so the way I approach Judges 19 to 21 is to think about it as a biblical, historical horror story that is meant to teach us about, about the danger of culture, about the danger of sin, about the, about the world in which we live. And it's, it's addressed to people of faith, and that's the key here. And... It's, it's showing us that the church is not immune in the Old Testament from being affected more by the surrounding culture than the grace of a good God who is, who is king. And so this is where I find this helpful, and I hope it does for you as well, because we live in a world where we are under immense pressure just to fit in with our neighbors, to live as if Jesus isn't king, to do what we want as long as it doesn't harm other people, to live as if my life is my own, and I get to do whatever I want. And this passage is here to wake us up to say, culture is sending you one direction. Here's the final destination, and it's ugly. The gospel, if you follow the life of love of Jesus, it's going to lead you somewhere else. But, but you only get the ugliness in this story. Because this, this passage is here just to shock you, frankly. And it starts with this terrible evil in Gibeah among God's people, among the tribe of Benjamin. And you have that really weird, callous reaction of a husband towards his, his wife. And then chapter 20 that we didn't read, all of Israel responds to that gory telegram. And the Levites says, they attacked me. He makes himself out to be the victim. He says, they violated my concubine, she is dead. And all of Israel gets so angry that they make this stupid vow. It says, these people are so bad, we're not going to give our daughters to marry any of those people. And that comes back later. And then you get a civil war. It's the 11 tribes of Israel led by Judah against the one tribe of Benjamin because Benjamin refuses to give up those among them who committed these crimes. They would rather go to war than defend the perpetrator. They'd rather go to war than to give up the perpetrators of evil. They'd rather go to war than do justice. This is really ugly. And the result of this civil war, 40,000 Israelites die, the tribe of Benjamin. It's like practical genocide. They're nearly wiped out. Uh, all because one group of people refused to call evil, evil, 
and give them up. Uh, the Benjamite men, women, and beasts were killed. Towns were burned. It's a scorched earth policy. That's the, the, the ugly story of chapter 20. And then chapter 21 is the aftermath. It's the broken attempt to fix this chaos and misery caused by the Civil War. And then you ha this is what's so fascinating is, is the 11 tribes are just brokenhearted by all this mess. It's kind of like the aftermath of an argument where you're just guilty and ashamed and ugh afterwards. They have pity on Benjamin because they don't want one of their brothers to be without a future. There's only 600 surviving men left. But they now have no options for wives. So how do you preserve the tribes? And so the, the messed up solution, this is messed up. <laughs> uh, they find a town that didn't participate in the Civil War, Jabesh Gilead, and they, they, take, they destroy the town and steal 400 brides for these men. And then there's still 200 men without wives, and so what about the rest? Well, there's a yearly feast celebrating the Lord at a place called Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. And when the daughters of Shiloh come out singing, these men are told, well, go steal a wife. And if their fathers and brothers complain, tell them, you should give your women graciously because we didn't steal them in battle, and nor are we forcing you to break your vow. You should say thank you. In which the translation really is, they're saying, we are helping you to keep you from sin by not breaking your vow, and we're helping you because you're not dead. And then the last lines of the book, this is how it ends, everybody goes home to live their lives as everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. There is no king in Israel. The end. We made it. <laughs> it it's almost so offensive, it's lacking in all social moral commentary, just just says they're doing, everybody's doing what they want. They went home. There is no king. And the hardest part about all of this, you have like really, really ugly stuff, but you also have compassion in the midst of it. But then you have all kinds of ugly stuff that happens because of the compassion. And so you're left with what lessons do you pull out of this mess? And I'm going to pull out three lessons. There could be more, but we're going to see the power of culture on, on the church. We're going to see uh, how culture can numb you to the value of one life. And ultimately, this is here to get you to ache for God as king, to, to ache for a, a king of love. And so let's look at it. What happens when we are transformed by culture? That's, that's the big point of chapter 19. It's one big idea. Israel is more Canaanite than they are like Yahweh, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and commanded them to live lives of love. Right? God's people are now Canaanite in faith and practice. So chapters 17 and 18 is they are Canaanites spiritually. Chapters 19 to 21, they are Canaanite like their neighbors uh, ethically. Right? And so Israel, rather than shining as a light to the nations as they were called to do, they're just as dark and unbelieving and pagan as if they never knew God. They're just as dark as their neighbors. Right? So the church is supposed to be different because Jesus is among us, and in this passage, they are no different. And this is the final effect of decades and decades of unbelief and rejecting God. The transformation is complete. That's the point. And I think what this is here for is to provoke and warn us 
the, of the power of the world in which you live to shape how you think, how you act, what you think is right, what you think is wrong, how you see the world. Culture is always forming you and fashioning you in a particular direction, and if you don't fight back, this is the end result. You're going to look like your neighbors. And so let's look at the story. There's a few details that help bring it, bring it to light, and then it'll, it'll push, drive the point home. If you start with the Levite and his unfaithful concubine, what in the world is a concubine? <laughs> I've always thought of a concubine as like a live-in girlfriend, so to speak, or a friend with benefits, a woman who was used. Um, sometimes that's true. There are kings who would have hundreds of concubines. But the basic understanding of a concubine is they, they are a wife. This is, this is a, a word to describe the wife of the Levite. Uh, 19.1 in the Hebrew, that's literally what it says. They just take out some of the repetition. The man took for himself a wife, a concubine. And a concubine was a woman who had no dowry. She came from a poor home. A dowry was money, wealth, clothes, things to build a home that would be given by the bride's family to the bride on the wedding day. And so when it says... She's a concubine. It means she's absolutely poor. And so Levite's doing a gracious thing. He's marrying a woman because he, I think because he loves her. There's, there's no social benefit for him. And there's no honor. He's not marrying in. He's not marrying into money, so to speak. All right? There's no social incentive to marry her. And then a Levite, a Levite's job was supposed to live by and guard and keep and protect the tabernacle. And they too generally were poor. They were dependent on the generosity of the others. They had no specific home in the promised land. The Lord was their inheritance. And what, what was supposed to happen if all of Israel was supposed to give gifts to the Levites to, to care for them so that they could then care for the tabernacle. Right? So the best meat, the best wine, the best gifts that the Israelites would bring to God would attend to Part of that would go to, to, to feed and care for the Levites. So the Levites had this great honor of serving God, of eating the best of the best as their reward for serving the Lord. Except this Levite isn't near the tabernacle. He's traveling. So I think the implication is he's, just, he's not super wealthy. At minimum, he's just a guy dependent on someone else's generosity. And so you have this picture of a Levite and a concubine from Bethlehem living on love, but she becomes unfaithful, or at least is so angry that she hates him and she disappears for four months. She goes home to her father-in-law. And the Levite does the, the good husbandly thing. He travels to the in-laws in Bethlehem in Judah with a plan to allure her, to bring her home, to win her back. It's the same kind of language used to describe the way God treats you and I. It's Hosea 2.14, God says, I'm going to allure you. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to draw you back tenderly to turn your trouble now into a place where you will respond like a young bride. That's this guy's hope. That's why he, brings, that's why he talks about donkeys. He's got a couple donkeys. He's not going to make her in humiliation walk. He gives her a donkey. Right, and then he goes to the father-in-law's house, and you have, this is such a big contrast. All the abundant hospitality in Bethlehem contrasted with the evil hospitality later in Gibeah. But when they, they leave, this is the choice that the Levite and the concubine have. We can either stay with our family in Israel, in Gibeah, which seemingly should be safe, 
or we can stay with the pagans, the Canaanites, those who are not like us in Jerusalem. It's just saying, which is a safer neighborhood, right? We all do that when we're traveling. You go and look for a, a hotel in the safest neighborhood. You don't want to be caught out in the streets in the wrong place or have your car break down in the wrong neighborhood. When we first moved to Jackson, Mississippi, we had this helpful, helpful comment. They said, don't turn left. <laughs> Everything's scary that way. Um, I, I didn't listen, but, but they were right. It, it, in, at night, in the dark, is not a place you wanted to be wandering about. And so the, what happens is they go to Gibeah, they choose what should be safe, and they enter the town square. No, this is, these are the notes. No one helps them. The only one who helps them is not from there. And he says ominously, don't stay in the town square. And later we find out why, because while they're eating dinner, you have this loud thump on the door. The sound of, it's literally the sound of grown men just slamming their shoulder into the door. Screaming and yelling, give us the man, we want to know him. We want him now. And there's just nothing good here. The Levite's a coward. The host offers not only his daughter, but another man's wife. There's just no sense of my life sacrificing for yours. It's only what I can use other people to save my skin. And that's what happens is the host takes this other man's wife gives her to the men outside. And then the Levi gets really callous and weird. She's no longer his husband. She's talked about like her, his, he's her master, and she just gets treated like stuff. Get up, get going. He takes her home and then sends this bloody telegram crying out for justice among Israel to say, how in the world should such a thing happen among the people of God? Consider it, take counsel, and then speak. And that's what we're called to do. <laughs> so what is this horror story for? The point is, Israel's been Canaanized, just like their neighbors, and this passage rhymes with another famous story in Genesis, right? This, is, this sounds just like Sodom and Gomorrah. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does have rhymes. Right? That's why we started the whole series on Judges with Abraham praying for this wicked city, because then the wickedness is now in God's people. It's what the church of God in Israel would become. Sodom and Gomorrah is now in Israel. This is a vivid, shocking story trying to show Israel the dangers of idolatry and subjective religion. Because you follow the train of thought, what should have happened to the Canaanites? They're going in, it should be judgment. Israel, what should have happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Ask that. They were judged. And so when you see Sodom and Gomorrah-like crimes happening among God's people, it's telling you they are not immune from the judgment of God. Right. And you get another way it shows who will go up for us to fight in chapter 20. The very first story, it's Judah leading the battle against Canaanites. Well, now at the end, in the very last story, it, they ask who will f go up for us and lead the battle against Benjamin. It's Judah again. And so you're just left with this question is now there's civil war, God's judgments aimed at God's people. How do they get so messed up? What's the warning here? And the warning is this. You and I are always being formed into the image of something that we love. You're either being formed into the image of, of the living God, who is love, 
where you're, you're called and empowered to live, where you, you live your life in service of others, or you're going to be formed into the way of life like Sodom and Gomorrah, a city where everyone lives as if your life is simply there to serve me and give me what I want. That's the point. You're being, you're being pulled in one of two directions, and as a Christian, you feel both. And this is a warning to say, look at the surrounding world in which you live, look at the patterns and habits of your life, and recognize you are being trained by the world in which you live not to love God and not to love your neighbor, but to use God and to use your neighbor. And that's why this is here. Because godliness looks like, well, the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve, to give my life for you. In a world of unbelief, it's your life exists simply to satisfy my desires. And if you don't give me what I want, it's going to get ugly. This will help. A guy named Augustine, I've talked about him before. He's a fourth century African theologian. He's thought about this stuff immensely. And deeply, he wrote this famous book called The City of God. And he describes two, there are two ways to live. You have this earthly city. The city of man, the cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and Babylon, the place where evil happens. It's, you have all these examples. The city of what's happening right here in our text. And you have the city of God, uh, a group of people living under God's rule and reign, living differently. And the main difference, Augustine says, is what you love. It's, the, the main difference between the two cities, the city of man and the city of God, is the two ways of living. What, uh, what, what's, what's shaping your love? In the earthly city, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You do what you want because it looks good and it seems good to you. To the point where I don't care what God thinks and to our shame I'm not caring what it does to our neighbor. In the heavenly city, uh, the, what's supposed to be the church, it's, it's a place where life is lived motivated by love for God because he first loved us to the point where I don't care what happens to me because I have to do what is right in God's eyes. You see the difference? It's two different ways to live. Judges 19 only shows us the ugly way, uh, the, the immoral way. Right. And for Christians, because God's eyes are the only ones that matter, we're called to live a life of selfless love because that's what Jesus did for me, even to death on a cross. And when you forget that you're in a battle, you end up in the place where Israel is, where you just get pulled downstream. You start to look like your neighbors. You start to think like your neighbors. You start to act like your neighbors who don't know Jesus. That's the warning. Right. Israel stopped swimming, and here's where they landed in this cesspool at the end. They've lost, they picked up the anchor for their soul. God is king, and they just don't care. And so, friends, I mean, this, here's, here's where I would say this is an illustration of. The New Testament is much more familiar. Uh, listen to 1 John 2. This is the warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of our bodies and the desires of our eyes and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away. But our Father, whoever does the will of God, abides forever. And so 
this is a much longer conversation. I'm just trying to shake. <laughs> I'm just trying to shake your brain to say this. This wakes us up to say, okay, what is my culture trying to train me to think? To think like them instead of thinking and acting like Jesus. Um, when I lose self-control, where am I being dragged to? Right? What are you being formed to love that is not lovely? And it's really helpful to pause here because this Judges 19 to 21 is part of the scriptures that are useful to train us in righteousness. It's, it's addressed to the church. It's really tempting as Christians to say it's really bad out there. But Sodom and Gomorrah happening inside the church, it's saying, look out. The greatest danger to the church is from within. Uh, unbelief, everyone living for themselves. So it's a good conversation to have. In what ways are we being swept downstream and being changed by the culture around us? Uh, attitudes about right and wrong, about, about the idea of Jesus being the only way, of what, how we see sexuality. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. One of the ways that culture does affect us, and this is point two, is saying we're not immune to this. We're being formed, and we're, we're called to be formed by Jesus. But if you just get rid of God as king, what happens is you become blind and numb to the value of a life. That's what happens in our text. Right? That the infinite value of one life is only possible if God is real. Right? I mean, it does, if you could go out into any university, you could go at, get anybody to read chapter 19 in Judges. They're going to say, this is evil, that's messed up, that's wrong. Those people need Jesus. Or <laughs> they would say some form of that. that. That is evil. We should take a stand against it. All right. And part of this, the reason this is in here, it's showing you that what you lose when you lose the idea that God is creator and he is king, you lose the ability to see the image of God in other people. You actually lose the ability to call these things evil because there's no purpose for people other than for them to give me what I want. Because judges, this is really helpful. When you come to these ugly places, step outside, look at the bigger story, and see that every human being is to be honored rather than harmed because they're made in the image of God, because they are created and crowned with glory and honor, they have dignity and worth. As Martin Luther King would say, every man from a, a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. There are no gradations in the image of God. Uh, we should respect everyone just because they are human. But the men of Gibeah, the Levite, well, just all the bloodshed, what happens is they lose God as king. They lose the ability to see people. They see objects to be used for their own pleasure and gratification. And so the point is, this is the warning. We live in a world that's training you to, to see people as less, to cheapen life. There's all kinds of ways this happens. Just go to the mall and look at all the posters and what they're blasting your imagination with of, of Victoria's Secret, of, of men, just... They're just there to look good. It's teaching you all kinds of things about sexuality, but also about what people are to be used for and why, why, how you want to look. It's teaching you. And when you see that for 20 years by the t or 18 years, by the time you go out into the world by yourself, it affects how you make decisions on how to relate to other people. 
Or think about it this way. Feel that guttural rage at what happens to the concubine when you see her as somebody human. And then use that rage and disgust when you log on to the internet, frankly. I mean, this is one of those places where you can talk about women being used simply for pleasure. It's ugly. That's in the church. See, we're called to go to war with all these attitudes that demean and dehumanizes people. And this is for men and women, not just men. Part of the story is here is to show you how valuable one life is. This one person split Israel and it's crying out for justice, demanding a king. So let me ask you this. When you see another person, do you see someone who is holy, who demands your respect? When you look at them, or do you just see someone who is there to serve you, to give you what you want? The image of God demands us to see people, to pause and say, God, help me see people as you see people, because that's what's missing in our story. Here's another application that, that we're being trained. And it's probably less obvious, but it, this is really important in the world we live. Because when you get to chapter 21, Israel does all kinds of hor- horrific things in the name of compassion. Right? They had pity on Benjamin, who they wiped out, and then they start to steal women, start to steal wives. Because they had compassion. And I think this is just a warning and showing us a danger that when you make compassion king, you don't have the power to stop what is evil. Because in our culture, we said, okay, I have compassion on people and therefore I shouldn't tell them what they're doing is wrong. But when this shows us in a really ugly way. If you only have compassion and you separate it from truth, from a God who is real, it can and will get ugly. You don't have the power to stop this. You don't have a power to change things. Compassion is a good thing. But when it leads you to do things that harm, compassion becomes a force for evil. Maybe I'm trying to figure out, I wrestle with how to articulate. This is hard. This whole section is hard to figure out what is a, a helpful way to apply this. But I think what it's, it can help us and warn us against is following our emotions of pity that lead us to give permission to things that God declares wrong. Right? Simply because we feel bad for somebody. Right? I'm not saying feeling bad for somebody is wrong. Please make those distinctions. <laughs> but it's really easy to say they, you know, they're, they're good, they're, they're loving, they're kind, they're not really hurting anyone, seemingly. I mean, in our passage they are. But it's, it's really hard when compassion alone drives you to relate to other people because you can't ever speak truth and say no. So what we're talking about is speaking the truth in love to each other. If you live by compassion alone, you lose out on real justice because your justice is going to look like everyone else's justice, which is just using power to take what you want. And that's what they do. The compassion of Israel In chapter 21, when they steal wives, that's exactly what the Canaanites were doing. That God judged the Canaanites for. You know, they be like them looking out at their neighbors and saying, those guys are messed up as they go and do the same things. See, pity and compassion alone struggles to say, I love you, you are wrong. 
But the alternative, if you only lose truth, then you just use truth like a hammer to beat people up. And that's what they use. They used the sword earlier to say that's wrong. And they went way over the top. Only the men who committed the crime should have been punished in this passage. What we need in this passage, I think, is calling us to is we need truth and compassion together. We need a king in Israel to administer these things. We need a king to show us what justice looks like, to show us what compassion looks like, to hold truth and love together, to help us show how to be human, how to love one another. All right, so this is just a warning. Warning against that we need help to see people and warning against using compassion and being just only using compassion. We need truth as well. Last point, and this is heading towards a conclusion. When you're done, how do you feel in this text? Like I said, this is lessons from a biblical horror story. I mean, this is warning you that we are in danger. Because Israel had no idea that they got to this point. They thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing mercy and justice when they were doing evil. It's warning you that culture is working with your desires to get you to want what the world wants to motivate you to swim upstream, to follow Jesus, to live a life of love differently. It's also warning you that if you reject Jesus, you're going to devalue and cheapen life. And what it's causing us to do, and it causes me to do, is, oh, I need Jesus to make things right. I need a king. You need a king in Israel. And that's the whole point of this book, is to say, Israel, without a king, there's no one to do justice. There's no one to show how to relate to God as father. Uh, to, to motivate true spirituality and to enforce it, to get rid of idolatry. I know all you get is a bunch of people doing whatever they want. But doesn't this get you to long for a benevolent king? Especially as we approach the next political season. <laughs> Someone who can show you what selfless love looks like, who will speak the truth in love, who, who moves you towards the right thing but doesn't come down on you with a, a hammer and, le- and with bloodshed. As someone who shows you how to see people, to honor the dignity of others, but who's also not afraid to be honest with you and say, you need help, you need to change. All right. At the next part of the biblical story, you get Saul from Benjamin, which is ominous. <laughs> he ends up using power for himself. And then you get David, and it's this high point when he brings the temple. And he's, he does unify the tribes and teach Israel how to love God and love their neighbor. But he too falls, falls victim to the power of culture. I mean, with all the wives, the murder, and adultery. And ultimately, you've got to follow the line to Jesus who does this. And that's the point. I mean, if you are shocked by a violent, bloody, unjust, cruel, and heartless murder of a concubine to scream, that's evil and wicked, how could anyone do that? How much more shocking is it when you look at Jesus, the one true king who did speak the truth in love, who did honor the image of God in everyone, to see him, the spotless lamb of God, (coughs) bleeding on a cross, not necessarily out among the pagans, but in Jerusalem, put to death by the religious people. As Caiaphas said, it was better that Jesus would die for the nation then we die and give up our power. It's the attitude of the city of man. See, the beauty of this shocking moment is that God on the cross in the gospel 
shows us Jesus coming down to live a life of love, to show us a selfless life, who's even able to use that evil for our good, to forgive our sins forever. Because the, the context of Jesus' story and the context of Judge's story is the same. When you see Jesus on the cross, who is he dying for? Well, in Judges 19, it's, you have the love, the weird love, the broken love of a Levite for his concubine. But that's the whole story of Judges. God's relentless love for Israel who had nothing to bring to the table. A spouse who does not deserve this love, who cheated on God. And God comes to Bethlehem to pursue this concubine. You see this story in Ezekiel 16. When God calls Israel and she's, she's the concubine that he loves, who is unfaithful. Now the horror of the gospel is we have to admit we were unfaithful. We put Jesus to death. But he came out of selfless love because he wanted us. Not for anything. He, what did he have to gain apart from us? He just wanted us. See, the hope of the story of the gospel is the same as the book of Judges, that God will not leave you alone. As Ezekiel 16 says, God will remember his covenant promises, his, his married-like vows, where he says, yes, you will be ashamed for your sin and the evil you've chosen, but I will atone for you. I will take away your sin. It's verse 62 in Ezekiel 16, I will establish my covenant with you. This is like a marriage ceremony. You will know that I am the Lord, that you may remember, be confounded. You'll keep your mouth shut <laughs> because of your shame, but then you'll see I will atone for everything you have done. That's the cross. The God, the King of love, sent Jesus to die for his unfaithful concubine, the church. And now he is at work among us, forming you to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. See, when, you, when that becomes your story, you want to love what Jesus loves. It becomes the very core of who you are. And this is where you're going to get power to say no to culture. You have to love his love for you more than, more than the applause of your neighbors, if I could put it that way. Because to the extent that you understand and I understand Jesus' selfless, crucified love for me, that's going to motivate you to want to imitate it. As Paul would say, be imitators of God as those who are his beloved children walking in love, giving yourself up as a fragrant offering. The New Testament's just working out the, all those ideas to learn to love one another as Jesus has loved you at great cost to yourself. This sounds beautiful, but Jesus shows us that love is painful. It's, it has a crucified shape to it, but when you do love selflessly, you're going to actually imitate the love your Savior had for you on the cross. And it leads to resurrection. And so we've got to work to apply this in our home. I mean, I, this is probably some of the more, I don't know, just ordinary applications. Because when you're in Judges 19, it's so ugly when you think about objectifying people. But we objectify people that surround us all the time. When we get mad at them because they're not giving us what we want when somebody doesn't meet my needs, when my kids don't respect me, uh, when our neighbors don't do what I think they should do. 
You know, then we start to see them as rather than people who God calls us to love and to serve as people who are just in our way. So the gospel is pushing against that. So these are lessons from a biblical horror story that's actually teaching us. <laughs> teaching us to long for a life of love that we do have in Jesus. So go and learn what it means to be imitators of God as beloved children, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray. Father, there is a lot here, and I pray you would uh, just filter the, the good from the bad, and, and you would just shape, and shape our aching and longings for this Jesus. We thank you for spiritual reality that Jesus really did come down from heaven to earth to Bethlehem to woo us, to allure us, to draw us back to our first love. And so I pray for Hope Church that we would be a place known as the city of God where you dwell with us, that we live uh, being honest about our faults and failures, but working to serve one another and serve those in our families and our community. So we pray that this would be a little taste of heaven, a preview of the life to come, when heaven finally comes to earth and marries, a, where heaven marries earth, and we will live forever uh, as people who only know lives of love. We ache and long for that day. We thank you for Jesus, who is our king, who shows us what that will be like. In Jesus' name. Amen.